But I was, was, I remember there was actually, I remember it well because there was even backlash because people were like spraying the rise with beer and you know putting the dollar bills in their in their <laughs> kit and things like that. And there was backlash the next day, and some people were like, "Oh, that shouldn't happen. That's disgusting." And but everyone was having such a good time. It was like. G'day Legends and welcome back to the Press Room Podcast presented by Zwift. It is so good to be back. Season 3, I can't believe it. And uh, it was actually pretty hard to have a break, to be honest. I was just itching to get some pods out there for you guys. But we're back now and it's going to be a really good season. A bit of a mixed bag this season for you guys. Trying a few different things with regards to who I'm interviewing. Now, of course, we've got some of the world's best cyclists on this season. Last season, season two, I tried to get the biggest and the best guest. This season, I'm trying to, well, I've tried to get even bigger, and I reckon I have, uh, and a few different episodes coming up as well, talking with some cycling brands and some cycling companies, and I reckon you guys will really enjoy it. So if you're not necessarily a hardcore cycling frother or pro cycling frother, and maybe you just like the Australian guests, I think you'll like these episodes where I sort of uh, go into the backstories and learn more about some of the world's best cycling brands, which we all know and love. Also, going to be doing some race coverage. Now, the Tour de France Femmes Avex Zwift is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. I, along with a special guest, are going to be previewing and covering the race with some podcasts during the race week. You all know that I'm an absolute diehard pro cycling fan on the men's and the women's, so I'm super excited to try and bring you guys a little bit of uh, backstory, a little bit of knowledge with regards to the racing that's coming up. And of course, the special guest probably knows a lot more than me with regards to women's cycling as well. So that's going to be really exciting. But today's episode, the opening of season three, is all about the big news, okay? I'm bringing on a new partner for the podcast, which is really exciting for the growth of the pros- of the press room um, and also where I can take it. So the official apparel partner of the press room podcast is Attacker Cycling. Now, that is what this episode is all about. Attacker are a premium cycling brand based out of New South Wales in Australia, and they make some seriously good kit. Now, a little bit of a backstory about me. You would have heard me touch on this a few episodes here and there along the way, but I used to work in the cycling apparel industry, and my job was to know the insides and outs of the kit and the top-end kit and what makes cycling apparel good. So I really have a passion for this sort of stuff, and I know a lot about cycling kit and its construction and uh, you know, and how it should look and fit and feel. So to bring on Attacker Cycling uh, as a partner of the podcast is super Super, super exciting, and um, you know it's going to be really cool working with them for the rest of this year. We're going to be at Worlds together, so just stay tuned for some really cool uh, news about that. And uh, of course, something for you guys: you can get stuck into the attacker kit with a bit of a discount code. Now, let me tell you about the discount code. You hear it all the time through various partners of whatever companies, brands, podcasts whatever that they're sort of um, you know supporting or any brand. The point of the discount code is basically so that that brand, that partner, can see how much support, how much return on investment they are getting for their support. So when you guys wanna uh, think of a way that you can support the podcast, help me keep building this pod, you know, keep making it into that monster that I know it will become, you need to do it just by supporting um, Attacker. So if you wanna get some kit, 
uh, you want to support the podcast, just use the code. It's CR, this is all capitals, by the way, CR dash the press room. All caps, it'll be in the description. You'll be able to see it there. But if you want to support the press room potty and you need some new cycling kit, some some sick cycling kit, I might I add, just go into attackercycling.com and uh, use that code. Attack will be able to see how many times it's been used and um, they'll see, geez, the press room's just popping off. Um, we need to support it even more. So um, that's kind of how it works. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a really cool partnership. Of course, you know I know Kit really well. If I'm going to recommend any um, Kit from Attacker first up, I would definitely say get stuck into the bib shorts. There's just something about the paneling and the way they've constructed that bib short is really, really nice. Um, you know, it kind of conforms to the legs and the lower body really well, almost compression-like. It's it's a great feel. Um, so give them a whirl and see what you think. But anyway, legends, that's today's episode, okay? Today's episode, we're going to be learning about Ataka. We're going to hear more about what it takes to start a cycling apparel brand, what sort of the influences are with regards to uh, construction, uh, materials, design, um, you know, what's sort of influencing the style of kit. We see, you know, brands like MAP and Rafa going really wild with their sort of sand people style kits they're bringing out, the alternate ranges. And, um, and also, you know, the struggles and the challenges uh, all brands went through during that pandemic and that corona sort of period. And then, of course, what the sort of cycling apparel industry is doing right now and where it might be headed in the future. So lots of cool things in this episode. It was really cool to catch up with the founders of Attacker Cycling and learn more about them. Now, I know there is plenty of New South Wales legends and uh, friends of the podcasts, you know, listening. So this one is really for you, isn't it? It's your home ground pod. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and I guess it's time to get stuck in. So you know what to do. Get on that ergo. Get on the commute, because it's time for the first episode of Season 3 of the Press Room Podcast, and I'll see you all soon. Greg and Steve, you guys are the founders of Attacker, is that right? That's correct. Beautiful. Yes, we are. So... Can you guys just give us a bit of an intro into um, how the brand began, how Attacker started, how you guys came up with the idea? Um, maybe just start with, you know, where the idea came from initially. Yeah, well, back in 2012, so 10 years ago this year, actually, uh, Stephen and I were longtime mates. We rode together. We uh, mountain bike together, rode on the road together, um, things like that. And we just saw back then a gap in the market for what was like essentially fashion forward cycling kit. Like um, it was very, back then people were still getting around in team kit and very Eurocentric block colors. And, and, and we just, we just uh, saw a need or from our point of view, especially like we wanted something to ride on the, on the road and, you know, have a little bit more style, a little more fashion, a little bit more, attitude i suppose and um and we took it from there it's stuff that reflected our tastes like we didn't feel we didn't feel there were any any brands or any kits in the market that really reflected things that we were interested in personally like in terms of the stuff that we were in outside of cycling there was yeah a lot of a lot, as greg said there were a lot of team kits out there and a lot of sponsor logos all over the place but we didn't feel like there was anything that represented our taste in terms of like skating or street culture or art or design or fashion so we just decided to have a crack and make our own brand out of it at the time 
and right. really just like make things that we liked um, that were influenced by our own personal tastes and make things that we thought our friends would like as well. Okay. And what were you guys wearing at the time when you guys were riding around together? What, what did you guys have on the bike? Uh, oh, like, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was like, I remember getting, wearing a lot of team kit. Like, honestly, it's kind of embarrassing to say now a little bit, but yeah. What teams though? I think I remember, I remember my favourite was the, uh, was the pink and black T-Mobile in oh. back in the time. And I was yeah. wearing that. I was even wearing that with mismatched bibs. I remember <laughs> having like some kind of a blue bib with that jersey. <laughs> like, this is well back in, but, but other than that, it was the, you know, the, I was even wearing that that red kit, the Melbourne team. Um, trap pack. Trap pack. I was wearing trap pack oh, kit. Oh, oh. <laughs> like I was part of a Conti team. That was a good kit, though. It was. <laughs> well, funnily enough as well, I came from, I was I was working in the cycling industry and I was actually working at Netty. So I had a lot of uh, sort of Netty product on hand. And then even back there, I was part of the process when Netty took on and sponsored trap pack which I think that's where some of that kit would have come across from. So, so yeah, you had, I don't know, it was, it's, it was a funny time. It was like this, you could tell a lot of people were hungry for something and, mm. and sort of we jumped on and, and, and provided that. And we went pretty heavy. Like the first, our first range was, which was namely called the Pioneers. It was, it was 10 full kits and we, 10 or oh. eight, eight or 10. I think it was really? 10 yeah, 10 kits and our full kit. So we weren't, because, you know, coming from my experience wearing mismatched bibs and, and jerseys, weren't allowing, weren't allowing people to make those same mistakes. So it was like you had 10 kits, you had to buy the bib and the jersey together. As a complete set. As a complete set. Wow. And, and they were also, we, back then we were, we were fighting with different factories just because they're like, you can't, you can't print on the bib fabric like you can't do an all-over print that's going to be on the seated area because it's going to wear off and it's not going to be any good and we're like just give us just have a go like we're gonna this is what we want it to look like because we were doing there was like the leafy camo which is a full over leafy camo print <laughs> enough um and we made it work and then it did work and like i don't know if the factories were surprised by it or not but it was it was very different it was a very different time in the market that's for sure like um, graphically what we were doing was really out there, but even it seems silly now to sort of say it, but like even basic things were considered an innovation, like doing a long sleeve that came down to your elbows was considered like really out there because everyone's sleeves were short and they were above the bicep and even socks were still pretty much predominantly below the ankle socks. And when we were doing long socks, people were like, wow, Whoa. Oh, don't know if I can wear that. It's like, it's like, Right, okay. It's only 10 years ago, but little simple things like that at the time were quite considered adventurous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And when, like, you started drawing up some of the designs for those first eight kits, what yeah. were the what were some of the influences that were, you know, stimulating your design for those? Like, what, do you mention there was a bit of skating culture? Was that some of the stuff involved with the kit design? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, again, it back, back then, like, there weren't brands really doing what we were doing. So mm. it, it seems silly now, but most of our influence was coming from street and surf and design and fashion and, you know, active wear and luxury and stuff like that, those sort of brands. 
everything was coming from outside of cycling. So now it's almost a little bit cliche to say because that's what all the brands say. But at, at the time, um, yeah, we were working with friends who we didn't have friends who work in cycling industry and we didn't have other brands you could draw on. So every all the influence was coming from outside of cycling. And so if we had people who were doing our designs for us at the time, they were working in the fashion industry. So that's where all Oh, from. Right. And when you got those first kits made up, how did you get them out to, you know, how did you sell them? Were you just selling them out of like a, a small shop, out of your own house, your garage, or what was going on there? Uh, we, had, we had the website set up. So we, we, we first and foremost set up the e-com site um, okay. in the background. So while we were doing the development on the product and getting sampling made up at different factories and things, um, we were already working in the background to get a website set up, but we didn't have, we weren't sophisticated yet to the point where we had a warehouse or staff. So there was an element of, there was stock kept up in my attic or in Greg's garage or something like that. So when orders would come through every day, you'd wait till you got home from work and you'd by hand write up the orders on, on mailer bags and fulfill the orders from tubs of stock and send them out to people. Um, so yeah, we, we quickly got past that phase where we're like, holy shit, there's a few too many orders coming in for us to be able to do this by hand for very long. So we had to go out and find a warehouse and um, sort of a logistics setup. Wow. And how, what point, how long had you been going? When it, was you- probably, uh, it was probably a couple of years, I'd say, before we did the yeah. warehousing. But we, and we were still... We were still both working full time jobs as well. Like we hadn't, we hadn't, like it was, it was still very much uncharted waters or uncharted territory. Like what we were doing, what we were trying to do, and we had no idea where it would end up. And at that time, I mean, Stephen had a couple of kids. I had a girlfriend, <laughs> but uh, the financial <laughs> pressures were were a little more probably. But like, yeah, we were very, I uh, sort of reserved. And then, um, but then it sort of hit a point, yeah, we got a warehouse and then next we had some offers and we're hiring staff and it was, and sort of it went from there and, and we started realizing what we'd started and what could be. Yeah. So we didn't, we didn't quit our jobs on day one is what Greg was saying. Yeah. We were, we sort of, we didn't take the plunge straight off the bat and go, yeah, sick. This is a, this is a viable option. Um, yeah. And as you touched on, like it was, it was uncharted territory. No one had really paved that way to say, yeah, you can, you can, Turn this cycling crazy cycling kit thing into a into a viable business in the in the area that we were playing in um, with that sort of outside cycling influence and um, yeah the design stuff. So and, and Instagram like we it was sort of like I don't know could almost say like one of those Instagram style brands like Instagram had just I think it had only just was it even there Yeah, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to Google as we speak when Instagram yeah, started. Surely it would have been. But not quite popular. Yeah, it started. So it started in two, October two thousand and ten. So we were probably wow two years behind that. But Instagram, you know, was was pretty was pretty small back then. So you know, we started pushing it out via Instagram. That's how we get message, and it was very much word of mouth. So it was spreading from the sort of the Sydney to then Melbourne to Queensland, and then overseas, and then you know, it, it started rolling from there. Yeah. yeah so okay. It played, played a huge role in um, being able to get the brand out there into the world, get it in front of people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And during those first couple of years and you just started getting into the, you know, you're opening up the warehouse and stuff, did you, or even maybe just before the, the you got your own warehouse, 
did you experience the sort of dip in sales that you might see in a winter time um, and or any challenges like that where maybe sales were low and you start were there any doubts like in those sort of moments actually the way well that's another thing as well and the reason we weren't quitting out jobs just at that stage the way the business was set up and the way the product range was set up was we had those you remember we had the season one season two where it was sort of 10 kits and we're probably launching those kits probably twice a, twice a year or three times a year or something like that and they were quite sporadic so we didn't have that constant cash flow we hadn't introduced like a core range yet we hadn't introduced plain black bibs or plain navy bibs so it was all this design based very yeah very seasonal but not with like your winter and summer just like in terms of our um our drops so then we had this big spikes of revenue and then we'd be back to use that for for like you know business costs and buying stock for the next range and and, and it mm. wasn't till probably 12 months i think we were 12 months in when we introduced core it wasn't far behind yeah and then we sort of had to yeah had to introduce core which was just sort of plain jerseys and then and then yeah from there mm. we had from the very beginning, I think we had socks, kit. What did you, in that initial period, guys, what did you guys get right and what did you guys get wrong with regards to the kit itself, those kits? Jeez. Kits themselves. I think, we, I think what we got right was uh, we always made sure that performance was at the top of... The, the sort of, I guess, the key pillars of what we were trying to achieve. There was, it was never about, it has to just look cool and the graphics need to be right, the branding needs to be good. It has to be the peak of, of performance. And so when people get the product, um, there's maybe been a misconception with a lot of other brands out there or people's experience where if, if the graphics were really interesting back in the day, it must mean that the kit itself was just like really basic and quite cheap in terms of performance and the materials used. Whereas we were always like, no, it needs to be made the best factories. We need to use the latest fabrics available. Um, functionality needs to be really good. It needs to be durable. We're charging a premium, but it needs to be up there. So once people actually get it and they try it on and they go, oh, wow, actually, it's not its not just about the design and the look of it. It's actually the best kit out there too. Mm. Yeah, okay. That's we, got, we got that right. And that's always been part of our ethos and our philosophy is, is really that performance and and the innovation aspect. Um, and then and then it's sort of like secondary is the, the design. Um, and one of our other key pillars is sustainability. Uh, which we're working really hard on at the moment, but we won't sacrifice performance just to introduce sustainability. Mm. Okay. And what didn't go right during those initial periods? Was there something that you you um, improved on later on from those initial run of kits? But, uh, in terms of the product, I, I can't even think of any, any, as Stephen said, like the product, we didn't, everything was out of Italy. It was like, performance and quality and the fit was something that was really important to us we were trying you know longer sleeves like mm. longer legs like and just um well, we probably went pretty nuts on some of the graphics like we did we did some really out there stuff yeah you you, you now you kind of go oh, well that was that was a bit too far left field yeah. <laughs> so in terms of things that we got wrong we yeah there's, there's well, definitely I- been 
we'll have, have to get some photos of those kids. Has it, stood, has it stood the test of time necessarily? Yeah, like I think I think for us looking back, like because it's not so much the kit, but I suppose as, as like just the brand and business as a whole, it's like a lot of small businesses. We started, we didn't really know where it was going to end up, where it was going to go. So we were very much, um, I suppose, almost flying by the seat of our pants about 10 years ago. Like mm. if, you, if, you have a, if, if you had a crystal ball and you knew where things were going to end up, you'd probably clean things up a lot from the beginning and just, and just push that through. But it is what it is and, and we are where we are, I suppose, because of that. So you can't really change that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, how about as it sort of started to develop um, and a couple of years on, was there a key moment uh, maybe in that medium term of the, you know, the 2014, 2015, was there a key moment where the brand sort of stepped to another level? Like in Not terms really. That's kind of something that you, you kind of think in business there's going to be like one golden moment or one memorable thing but there's not it's it's more like lots of little things that add up to bigger things over time i mean, i couldn't say that there's been really one pivotal thing there's always lots of it's literally daily decision making and discussions around things and some things pan out some things don't but I, I i couldn't really pinpoint yeah that was one really golden moment where there was a tipping point um and, and things just all of a sudden changed overnight. It's it's just, I, I, maybe that happens in business, but it's not something I can really pinpoint or say that. Hmm. Okay. Well, what about um, I guess when you first began, it would have started mostly in Australia. Obviously, starting in Sydney, and you said branching out to Melbourne, Brisbane. Um, around the country but what about getting into the international markets how did you guys go and um, how did that sort of develop your international audience and how are you developing it actually that that's i wouldn't say that was the tipping point no definitely not but i do remember we had a crack and what year would it have been that we went to vegas we went to interbike but we didn't have a stand and we just had like a, 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 a luxe hotel room up in the uh where was it 2000 14 or 15 it was pretty early on yeah like we took we were still only doing the printed kits i think and we basically took them over and had like a a rack in um in hotel room in vegas and we're sort of at interbike and sort of walking the aisles and meeting people and saying hey do you want to come upstairs and i suppose that's (laughs) that was the very start of trying to trying to take it internationally we spent spent some time up in portland and we we spent some time yeah vegas we went to la and just dropping in and seeing people and unannounced, mind you. Yeah. Wow. Very, really? It was very like very bootstrapping, you, you know, mm. the, the old school way. Like the we were saying that social media was really helpful and it was because it does introduce you to an international market from day one. You're not you don't have to jump on a plane and go and see people. Uh, it, it obviously helps. But yeah, having that having that international market also meant from day one because of social media seasonality wasn't as much of an issue it's not like we saw slump in summer here or winter there it's when one season is going getting cold it's warming up somewhere else so we were always always internationalized i guess but we did we did spend time going overseas like greg was saying i went to the us and then we sort of made some trips to asia and we met a lot of um our existing dealers and distributors which were we're still working with most of them to this very day you build these really uh Sort of long-term, strong 
partnerships through riding. You, you, you take your bike over and it's, um, you're meeting people's families and you're having meals and you're riding with them for days and hanging out. And so it's not, yes, yes, it's there's business, but there's also a lot of long-term friendships that you make. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Who, who was coming up to the room when you're in Vegas? I'm interested to hear that. <laughs> I actually think of the office. <laughs> Done the Mifflin style. I can't even, I can't remember. We did, we were doing an office clean out the other day and we found these, we did these printed brand books we took over. Nice. It wasn't even that bad. It was, potential, it was just like potential retailers. Like we'd set up, we'd set up some appointments um, with US based um, shops and we, yeah, we were having meetings up in the room and going through the brand and showing the product and stuff like that. But then we, I remember it was also, we had, um, it was a good trip. We spent time with, room, we spent we time with those, out. we spent time with those guys from, <laughs> remember, remember Daniel and them from Manual for Speed. We spent a few days sort of hanging out oh, with those cool. guys, traveling with those dudes. And then we, uh, back then there was, um, it was called, what was it called? Cross Vegas. <clears throat> Cross yeah, Vegas. Which uh-huh. was sick, massive. Like that was for us who, cross cyclocross hadn't really hit australia yet and we were over in the us and what is this cyclocross thing and that was just massive and we're like this is cool and then you know chatting to those dudes and it was it was good it was just sort of starting to meet some of those um you know early influence uh, early influencers and bloggers and things like that and it was it was fun it was a good trip mm. you know just thinking about it now when i think back to that era of cyclocross and you're right it wasn't really taking off here in australia but the scene of cyclocross especially in america at that point kind of reminds me of um i guess it kind of has similarities with regards to that sort of uh like that skate off-brand sort of scene you know they were all wearing long sleeve skin suits there it was all a bit like dirty some of them had like beards and like it was a bit rough it kind of makes me think yeah. of that then they're similar it still felt grassroots yeah, it was, it was cool. But I was, I was, I remember there was actually, I remember it well because there was even backlash because people were like spraying the riders with beer and you know putting the dollar <laughs> bills in their in their <laughs> kit and things like that. And there was backlash the next day, and some people were like, "Oh, that shouldn't happen. That's disgusting." And but everyone was having such a good time. It was like, it was rad. I remember that well. Yeah. Okay. Really cool. And so, would you say um, at that point was was America the bigger? Uh, I guess audience for attacker back then or was it sort of just split between america and asia or was one bigger than the other america's always been uh i suppose big because it's, it's a obviously like volume and the, and the size of the country it's just it's always been a good target mm. um it's it's easy to ship to the usa it's obviously english-speaking countries so it's very easy to communicate with those with the uh with the customer while asia's actually been and something, and why we've worked hard all these years to develop such good relationships and such good dealer network is Asia. You're very well. You're a lot more dependent on your um on your dealers and your retailers and your distributors over there because they're the ones who are communicating your brand to the to their to their markets. Because mm. obviously, you know, be it Japan or Thailand or Indonesia or Taiwan, wherever it might be, those and um they're very you know they're so, they're so loyal and such loyal people and, and and we've spent a lot of time going to all those countries and and riding with their with their customers and and you know that's 
it's always a great trip. They're so hospitable and we love getting over there. And we need to actually start doing it more now that things are opening up after the past couple of years. It's something we've missed. Mm, yeah, absolutely. That's been a handicap for sure. Um, maybe go to Japan next. I'm going there next year, so we could probably all go there together. Um, and just there you go. Oh, <laughs> okay, so what about the shop? When did you guys get the uh, the attacker store? That looks really cool in Sydney, right? We opened. We were meant to. We were meant to open just as COVID kicked in. Um, so we took we took the lease and we moved all the furniture in, and then we went into lockdown like the following day, the first lockdown. Really, so the next day. Yeah, literally the next day. Like I remember, we were we, we had the the removal van and the guys were sort of. There was a lot of chatter in the days leading up to it that we go into a lockdown. And I remember the roofless guys for the furniture saying, oh, yeah, um, we might not be able to do the drop-off because we're probably going to go into lockdown tomorrow. But they came and they delivered all the furniture. And then sure enough, the following day, we were like, all right, let's, let's shut up shop for a few months. And then so we, we never really got that momentum for that yeah. for, for probably 12 months. Um, so we just, we just didn't open for the first 12 months. We had the lease and um, we did the fit-out and put all the plans through council and everything. And then we opened and then sure enough, went back into that second lockdown not long after. <laughs> but yeah, that's the, but yeah, it, it's been two years. To answer your question, sure, it was two years ago we opened yeah. technically, um, but it's been really good. Like we have, having that space um, and being able to do rides and have, have you know, community stuff mm. happening there on a regular basis. It's been really good. Yeah. Is it is it really important for a brand like Attacker and other cycling brands? I know many uh, cycling apparel brands have their own store, but is it how important is it to have that sort of um, home base? Is it is it really important? We think it's pretty important. It's hard to quantify, but it's something that you kind of it's more of a, a gut thing that you go, yeah, like it's it's worthwhile because you are interacting and you are able to tell your brand story and you get to hang out with people. Mm. You can have a coffee. Um, it's not, it's not just about, and it's, it's, yeah, it's not about selling product as much as it is about those community building exercises. Yeah, for sure. And you've got your group right on. Um, that's pretty cool. You've got a little cafe. Does it just start and finish at the store on yeah. a Wednesday? Yeah. Wednesdays from 6am from the store. Yeah. There's, uh, there's about what, three groups, different speeds, different levels. Oh. Right, everyone's accommodated. There's no drops. And then, yeah, back there to... There is one drop. There's back. one drop ride and there's two no oh, drop Okay, yeah, there's one drop ride, depending on if a That's couple a of our uh, <laughs> hitters turn up. But um, <laughs> And then back to the store for, uh, for coffees. Yeah, sweet. That's so cool. I'm just looking at the website and, and, and checking it. I saw that little uh, the video. It looks was that like your proper launch date? You can see this on the video, everyone. I'll put it in the link. We just go to the website, Tucker, um, cycling.com. But the you did like a was that, that was a, a cool. launch day with Will Carsola? Yeah, that was for an artist series launch. Mm. So we did um, we did a morning ride. We parked up back at the shop post ride, had donuts and coffee and hung out, had a DJ. Music at 7 a.m. and they just loved it. Yeah. <laughs> That's epic, though. It looked like a lot of fun. It was so sick. It was really good. Yeah, it was a great turnout. It was really fun. I just want to touch on one thing before when you're talking about the opening the shop and then, you know, Corona just went no, at the, you know, the next day. 
briefly, what were some of the, the biggest challenges for the brand during um, COVID? Obviously, it hit businesses um, certainly at the beginning, um, advantageous maybe a bit later on with regards to sales. But what were the biggest challenges that you faced with 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 Corona when it first came to um, well Australia? Keeping up with demand, but like to say it, but yeah, cycling went through a boom. It was you just couldn't keep up with demand. Wow. I think at the beginning, for the first month, it was real scary because obviously everyone just stopped buying because no one, it was so much uncertainty. We had to straight away send all the staff home and then it was like, all right, we've got to start to try to work off, operate the whole business through Zoom. And then, I mean, as Steve said, as as the months rolled on, yes, demand for cycling. I mean, cycling is a sport. We were all very considering, like, considering other other industries and what they went through. The cycling industry was very, very lucky. Very fortunate. Very fortunate. But then there was that, as the same as we, we shut down. So did a lot of our factories, a lot of our, not only our factories, but then the, the, the where they buy, you know, materials and where we, where we source our trims, everyone shut down. And then there was just mm-hmm. massive lags. So whilst there was a massive boom in the market and, you know, what we went from forecasting what is typically like an eight-week lead time, which was blowing out to sort of six months or even more because there was actually no communication because no one was around. And then, yeah, there was just a shortage. And it seems to be now it seems to be coming back, but, you know, even everyone's going through the same thing at the moment and, and, and go and try to buy sort of a, a high-end bike still at this day and, and you're looking oh. at months wait. And the, market, the whole market, the market shifted to a point where, People, if they want something now and they can find it, they're just taking it as opposed to, you know, really, really having that choice and mm. it's different. So, yeah, it was a strange, it was a very strange time. Mm. Quite surreal. Yeah. It certainly was. I think I got made and I suppose, and, that time. And I suppose looking back at it and we knew at that time uh, and for us, whilst there was the boom, the boom in the market wasn't necessarily our market I and mean, we pitched to a, a, a pretty much a high-end the high-end road cyclist essentially and then mm. spreading out to sort of gravel adventure mountain but the biggest boom that we saw was sort of those family bikes you know you saw your your, your mid-range family stores just getting pumped for those yeah. 1500 bikes so if I'm, someone's I'm buying that 1000 to 1500 bike it's pretty hard to expect them to pay four or five hundred dollars for a kit but i think as as covid has moved along we've seen so many of these people at $1,500 bikes you've probably got a percentage of gone put that thing in the garage collect dust but there's also guys who are going this is actually a really great sport I'm going to now invest you know four five six thousand dollars or more on a bike and and then we're starting to see that that roll through now and our, our market well cycling market as a whole is still ex, still seeing that exponential I suppose organic growth due to that yeah which is which is cool. I mean, you saw so many people uh, understand the sport a lot more, and I think I think it's spread across. Mm, definitely, I saw we saw the same thing here in um, in Perth as well with regards to what you're saying. You know, everyone just absolutely pillages '99 bikes, buys the family bikes, um, maybe buys a basic mountain bike or something, gets the bug well and truly. Then they go and buy yeah the next rig, and then next thing you know, well you got the bike, you got to look the part. Let's get some kit. Um, like everyone can, by the way, if you're listening, here we go, lads. CR dash the press room. That's going to give you 15% off. So everybody make sure 
you head to attack cycling and get some of this kit. Speaking of which, what was that code again? This is CR dash the press room, all caps. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just taking that down. That's a good deal. <laughs> I'm still blown um, away by you talking about Perth. Did you guys even have a lockdown? Did you have experience COVID? What do you we mean? did have a. We had a lockdown. We had nothing like <laughs> over East, especially here, yeah, Melbourne and, and Sydney. We got pretty lucky, that's for sure. Um, but I, I did always think when we were in our lockdown periods, I thought I think we had one weekend when we had to stay inside, and I was like. This is the worst thing ever. But then you look at Melbourne and, and you guys and it was like, you know, hundreds consecutive days. Um, <laughs> yes, no complaints here. But it actually changed people's riding habits. Like people don't, you don't see the big bunches like you used to. The groups are smaller and there's more of them kind of thing. And people change their habits like where they park up. They don't really, they don't park up in the city and then ride into into work and, and shower like they used to. They kind of park up in the suburbs and work from home now. So it's really changed people's habits and the dynamic of, of, of how they ride. It's funny. And it was, it was actually funny, like it was shit time, depending on where you lived as well, because they, they made all these special rules, like you couldn't leave your... What was it your, called? Your area. You, your, you couldn't leave your council you area. You couldn't like, leave like, your oh, council area. LGA. Yeah, LGA. You couldn't leave LGA. five kilometer radius or your LGA. So we were everyone was like printing off maps or going on Strava and creating these like <laughs> unique loops just to try to get like. And then I think for a while you weren't allowed out for more than two hours. So I was like, you're trying to create these loops that man, jump pays, like suburban, mm-hmm. absolute suburban jump pays, just to get get rides in. Yeah, yeah. We all and then and then, and then and then you sometimes see like. Dudes accidentally post on Strava. They just got got Jack with and went for a long ride. You're like, dude, you're on Strava. Oh, shit. I know, I know. <laughs> you know, there was there was a. Um... I was thinking back, not even that long ago, but thinking back, how crazy a time that was. legends i hope you're enjoying this episode so far with the attacker crew if you haven't already make sure you subscribed to uh, the podcast on your podcast player it can be the follow on spotify or the subscribe button on apple or whatever it is on google i don't know what it is but you know just click that button the subscribe rates are actually really really good and i'm hoping to keep them just keep growing as well because it helps the podcast with its growth also the youtube channel the press room podcast x zwift on youtube search that up check it out it'll be in the description as well a little link but make sure you subscribe to the channel this season i'm going to work really hard on putting out the video clips of the podcast which often are really funny because um yeah you get to see when when the guest is smiling and laughing and especially with one of the guests coming up um <laughs> ron dennis uh, there's some really classic stuff that just it goes to another level when you're watching the video so make sure you subscribe to the podcast uh on youtube and um yeah anyway okay that's enough i'm rambling it's time to get back to the episode cheers guys i wondered what are you guys thoughts on the current cycling apparel i guess industry because everyone out there will notice um many other brands this is why i like you guys, why I like attackers because as an ethos of mine to just do your own thing. Don't worry about everyone else's doing. I just do what I want to do um, and, and what motivates me. And, and 
And almost if I see people all doing something, all doing the same thing, following the same trend, I want to do the opposite. I really do. It, it's a weird thing. And that's why I like Attacker because you guys seem to um, you know, operate the same way. You're not chasing the other brands, which it seems like the others kind of are. Um, when you think about, you know, I look at some of these like gravel or alternative ranges that some like say for example map and raffa some of the kids are wild like they look sand people style they look cool but like i don't really get it but it just looks like they're kind of chasing each other and i just wondered if you guys like yeah what are your thoughts on the current trends and how it's all going there um yeah it's, it's interesting like there's i guess what you touched on there like i guess there's a, a, a bit of overlap now between brands where as there is there is like i guess a lot of brands now that are using the same references so there's overlap mm. um and that that can happen for sure there's not much you can do about it it happens in the, in the fashion world it happens in the surf world as as more brands um come into the cycling space it's going to happen here too we again tend to also because we're a small brand and are a small team of people our personal taste comes into things um to our own detriment sometimes and i guess maybe that's uh something that a lot of the other brands may not follow they'll stick to a script or they'll stick to you know certain directions that they they feel are hot at the moment or something but we often just you know follow our personal taste and sometimes it it's right sometimes it might not be right but um yeah we try we try to avoid just following the masses mm, yeah i rate it mate i really what's rate it. Out, yeah what's happening out in the market yeah i can see i can see what you're saying there is a lot of similarities across brands at the moment for sure because i guess they're taking influences from similar similar spaces mm. okay what about the current attacker range? What are you guys really excited about? You know, is there any sort of particular set of kit, like the, the Grand Canaria range, obviously just launched recently, which is pretty sweet. Um, but is any particular items on your lineup that really excite you? There's actually a ton of a ton of new product coming out. Like we're, we're rolling it out over the coming months, but one of those like supply chain issues, things are heavily delayed. But, but um, a lot of the new product that's going to be released over the coming months really excites us and and we're working heavily in that what i touched on previously with sustainability and introducing recycled materials that are still high performance and, and replacing a lot of the existing lines so that's some of the key things that we've been working really hard in the background on but we can't, until they kind of hit market it's not really something we can tell you too much about because we can't really show you show you anything oh that's uh Exciting. That's so cool. Okay. Well, that's good. But what about right now? If you've got one, if you're picking one kit, you just get to go into the drawer, you're putting one bit of kit on. What is your favorite bit of kit? Go around the room because Ben's in there as well. Um, of course, I want to hear just your favorite item of attacker apparel. Give it to me. Go, Ben. Silent Ben sitting there. Just lurking in the background here. Uh, race race 2.0. I think the the quality that we're putting out there with race 2.0 uh, and the block the block colorways, but it's still got a little bit of an edginess about it with reflective graphics and things like that. I think it's just a great staple, uh, and it's certainly the kit that I wear the most. Hmm. Okay. Um, 
I had a second child about two months ago, and I, I don't, I'd do anything just to get out of my pajamas and put any kid on. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, Race 2.0, which we launched late last year, is still my my go-to. Like I've always been since like since we introduced race, I've always loved the race range. Like you know, ultra compressed, uh, compressive, mm. um, slimline, slimmest chamois, things like that. I also mm. out, outerwear. Um, the I always actually quite like riding in winter and just testing out sort of we've got the new outerwear including the um like the quilted gelays and the jackets oh, yeah. and yeah the race the um the more the hard shell jacket mm-hmm. uh yeah I am um, I'm into the it being winter in Australia at the moment in Sydney albeit our winters are quite mild but yeah I'm, I like the quilted story at the moment the packable quilted jacket and the, the quilted gelay are a couple of my favourite pieces. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure there's a few people in uh, yeah, some of the international fans, the Kiwis and the people in Belgium listening to be like winter in Australia, be like their summer. But um, wow. it, it, it is a pretty cool, what I really like is the, yeah, that quilted jacket. Like that is something I haven't seen before because when it comes to cycling kit, often the 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 more warmer or the I guess they're trying to, appeal to a warmer climate, you know, the warmer the jacket's going to be, it loses its shape in terms of that cycling form, you know, because that, maybe it's a bit more bulky. And I really like how the the quilted jersey still maintains that, you know, that nice form, you know, so you can still show you've got, I don't know, the, it's an egotistical thing, you know, you want that cycling shape, don't you, when you're out riding and the jacket still yeah. maintains it. That's what I think is just unique. And the fabrics is, yeah. It's an interesting concept. That quilted, that quilted hooded jacket is kind of the, we'd probably undersell the, the actual story behind it a little bit on the website, but that, that is meant to be a bit of a crossover piece for you doing you know, a couple of overnight travel rides because you can pack it down and, and hang it off your bike, but it's also something that you can wear when you've reached your destination and if you're going to the pub, you don't have to bring an extra jacket. So the fit is sort of an in-between fit. It's not totally... Hmm. form-fitting, snug cycling so that if you do pull up at the pub, it's like so form-hugging that your T-shirt's hanging out underneath and you look kind of weird when you drink hmm. a beer. It's still got that little bit of a relaxed fit, um, but the zipper's still short on the front so that when you are on the bike, it's not like bagging up. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's intended as a sort of a, a crossover piece that you could hike in or you could adventure ride in or wear to the pub or whatever you need it for. That's cool. That's cool. It's a unique item. It certainly is. Uh, the shop, is there a, a go-to um, cafe around your area? Yeah, there's, there's a couple. We're pretty, we're pretty sport for choice, to be honest, where we are. Like single origin around the corner from us is pretty good. And, mm. um, sample's pretty good. I started with the rest. But um, there's, oh. like in Surrey Hills is really like a, a cafe hub in Sydney. So there's tons, like they're really sport for choice, but good coffee can't find a bad coffee to be honest yeah guys are artificer which are up the road mm. neighborhood as i said spoiled sport for choice around here it's pretty good in australia it's pretty damn good okay well we'll chat in a second but boys um greg Stephen, ben thank you so much for sharing a bit of insight into attacker uh it's obviously um super exciting brand and and, and really cool to be together on this with the press room as well. So um, thanks for sharing a bit of insight into uh, the brand. Thanks for having us on. It's been a pleasure.
Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. It's always good to learn more about um, what we're wearing and where the, you know, where all the kit and influences come from as well. Cause you know, uh, there's always a story behind the brand, how it started, how it developed. So it's, um, yeah, it's really good to hear uh, the backstory. Yeah, it's nice to be able to tell it. Thank you very much. All right, Legends, that is the first episode of Season 3 done and dusted. Big thanks to Attacker and the Legends there for giving us a good insight into how the brand started and everything behind the scenes there at one of the best cycling apparel brands in Australia and maybe the world. If you want to give their kit a go, cr-thepressroom. It's in the description. Let me know. If you buy some kit, send me a message and um, tell me what you get because I've got quite a bit of it now and I'd be really interested to see what people are buying. Huge thanks to Zwift, our title sponsor, and of course, uh, and of course Smith Optics, the eyewear partner. Um, it's just good to be back. We've got another episode coming up very, very soon. I'll drop one of the rider interviews coming in in a few weeks' time. Tour de France fans, it's going to be awesome. We're going to be previewing and covering the race with a really special guest. So that will be something different. I'm really interested to see how you guys receive those eps. But anyway, don't forget to like the podcast card on Instagram. And my friends, I'll see you again for another episode.